Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases, RTPFL, in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Carl Herup about his new book, How Not to Study a Disease, The Story of Alzheimer's. An authority on Alzheimer's disease offers a history of past failures and a roadmap that points us in a new direction on our journey to a cure. For decades, some of our best and brightest medical scientists have dedicated themselves to finding a cure for Alzheimer's disease. What happened? Where is the cure? The biggest breakthroughs occurred 25 years ago, with little progress since. In How Not to Study a Disease?, Neurobiologist Carl Herup explains why the Alzheimer's discoveries of the 1990s didn't bear, bear fruit and maps a direction for future research. Well, Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we're living through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by telling us how has it influenced you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Um, the pandemic certainly has been a major disruptor um, at just about every level. So obviously at the at the at the bench level, at the experimental level, um, we had to wind down a lot of what we were doing and put it on complete pause for many months. Um, we're back up again, but not even still at uh, at full capacity. And intellectually, it was also a, uh, a tremendous problem because all of the, uh, you know, the in-person meetings that we would have, either uh, seminars of visiting scholars or attendance at national and international meetings, all of that was uh, completely put on hold. And uh, virtual meetings are fine. They they certainly have their place and they're better than nothing, but um I would say it's been a uh, it's been a difficult time at best. And has it affected your travel? And do you think you will limit your travel further? 
Oh, completely. Um, the only meeting I've gone to, and I still look back and regret it, uh, was I went to the International Alzheimer meeting in um, in July in Denver. Um, I don't regret the meeting itself. It was wonderful and very exciting, but I think it was a little bit reckless on my part to uh, mingle with uh, hundreds, if not thousands of other uh, international travelers. So yes, and um, I have no plans for any meetings um, for the foreseeable future. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Um, well, I guess I would uh, characterize myself as a, as a basic scientist um, interested in the biological basis of, of uh, human disease. Um, at, at a scholarly level, my interest is in the process of neurodegeneration. Um, and I've studied diseases from uh, rare ones like ataxia telangiectasia that affects young children um, to the one where I've, I think, spent most of the time on my career, and that is um, studying Alzheimer's disease and other late onset dementias. Um, I have applied this craft um, literally all over the world um, and think of myself as having a somewhat international outlook uh, on science and, and very much value um, the international complexion of science and how that strengthens the entire enterprise. And how did you get interested in sciences? Um, <clears throat> well, if you really want to know, I think I could trace that back to a uh, course in genetics that I had the second year of college. Um, and uh, I often attribute that course to planting the bug in my brain that um, has uh, stayed there ever since. Um, it was a great disappointment to my parents that I was diverted from going to medical school and ended up doing something worthless, like becoming a PhD instead of an MD. Um, but um, it seemed to have made out all right. And along, along your career journey, were there any mentors that uh, you find really supportive? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, and they come in at all ages and all, all flavors. Um, I like to say some of my best mentors have been students um, where I, I feel that in, in struggling to teach them in ways that can reach them, I actually learn a lot more of my own craft and my own, uh, uh, and improve my own knowledge. Um, but certainly that, um, the professor from that genetics course at, uh, Brandeis university, Chandler Fulton would, would be one of my mentors. I give great stock to my, um, graduate advisor, Eric Shooter and, postdoctoral advisors, Dick Mullen and, and uh, Hans Ternan. Um, and along the way, just countless people have influenced me and uh, both guided my thinking and sharpened my thinking. And what would you tell our younger listeners who might be considering career in research instead of medicine? I would say um, it's... I have found it to be a wonderful life, but you have to live your life, not me. Um, and I think you need to decide for your own. Um, I, it's, it's not an easy path, but I don't think any path in life is easy. Um, 
I have found it to be one of the greatest jobs in the world um, and um, wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, but it's a very individual decision. I just would encourage younger people to, no matter what path they choose, um, to always stay curious and keep asking questions. Um, even if you go into, um, into a, a more directed field like medicine or, or find yourself uh, rather than an academic industry, uh, academic pursuits, uh, find yourself in industry or um, uh, an area of science is perhaps more applied. Stay curious, always ask questions. Um, and even in medicine, even in, in industry, you'll, you'll do better at what you do uh, uh, for nurturing that curiosity. Oh, these are excellent points. Thank you for that. So your latest book is How Not to Study a Disease, The Story of Alzheimer's. Can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Um, I can, and it, it actually follows nicely from the comments I just made about curiosity. Um, I, I guess I have a, a, I find it difficult to just um, unquestioningly accept the dogma of a field and um, I came to Alzheimer's research sort of in the middle of my career. So I think I said in the beginning, my interest had been in, in cell death. And I had been focused mostly on um, uh, childhood diseases, but clearly uh, with a major neurodegenerative uh, phenotype, such as you find in Alzheimer's disease, um, it wasn't going to be long before it, it captured my attention and it did. So I made the move to the Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland and joined the Alzheimer's Research Lab there. And it very quickly became apparent to me um, coming to it as a now sort of mid-career scientist already that a lot of what was purported to be settled, settled art or settled dogma in the field just didn't make sense. And from those very early concerns uh, grew a, a nagging doubt that we were approaching this disease in the best way possible or even, even a, a sensible way. Um, so I like to say this book sort of had a very long gestation period. Um, it literally began when I was in Cleveland, which was in the early 2000s. Um, and then finally, and I describe these events in the book with the, uh, the event that I call the third inflation, um, I had simply had it. I, I just couldn't not speak up. And that led to a series of articles that I wrote uh, in the professional literature. But I remained frustrated and felt that I needed to reach out not just to my colleagues, who were probably tired of hearing from me, uh, but to a broader audience um, and to try and explain where my frustration was coming from and why I thought that the story of Alzheimer's actually applied um, in an industry-wide fashion and had, had lessons beyond the study of Alzheimer's itself. 
So let's delve into some of the science and the stories that you tell in your book. And let's start from the very basics. Could you describe what is an Alzheimer's disease? Ah, well, you've really hit the uh, the most difficult question for your first <laughs> one. Um, <laughs> so let me just say, I would define Alzheimer's disease by its clinical symptoms. So it is a progressive uh, dementia that is characterized by a, a series of, of peculiar symptoms um, that a trained neurologist would be able to recognize. Um, the most famous of these, of course, is the uh, gradual loss of the ability to form and retain short-term memories. But there are, uh, in addition, behavioral um, manifestations. So um, aggression, apathy, depression, all symptoms of the progress of the disease. And finally, um, it appears that almost no region of the brain is spared. And um, at the end stages of the disease, an individual is institutionalized almost always. Um, they're unable to care even for their most basic needs. Um, and um, and and are very susceptible to all sorts of opportunistic infections. Um, and of course, one of the great tragedies, which uh, I mentioned in the book, is that it's an extraordinarily long disease. It, it takes um, over a decade um, from first diagnosis to, um, to death and um, the burden borne by both the person with the disease and also their, their family and caregivers is uh, enormous. And what is the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? Um, officially, dementia is the broader class of um, uh, late onset degenerative um, brain disease. Um, but as it's currently defined, Alzheimer's is by far the uh, the major uh, type of dementia. So Alzheimer's is a is a dementia, um, but it is only one of several uh, types. And that's something that really uh, strikes me uh, when I was reading in your book that uh, quite often, more often than not, if the person recognizes that they are losing their memory, they're likely to have other dementia rather than Alzheimer's. And with Alzheimer's, person is quite often unaware Yes, um, it is a very strange but persistent symptom of the disease that um, the person is unaware um, of what's happening to them, um, or at the very least, they can't articulate their awareness. Um, but the the change in the person is is quite apparent to their family and and to their friends. So now if we uh, talk a little bit about the perception of Alzheimer's disease from all of these different points of view, so for example, from physicians, from mm. researchers like you, and also from patients and the and their families. Um, my hope would be that in the long run, those three views would be a, a unitary view, that they would be united. Um, and... Um, 
that we would would leave the situation we find ourselves in now where what the patients care about is different than what the physicians um, describe as the disease and that both the physicians and layperson's description would be couched in terms that basic researchers such as myself could go into the laboratory and actually begin to do productive work that would either um, arrest the disease um, and prevent it from progressing or um, um, even uh, prevent it from, from starting in any significant way. So why are there such gaps between uh, uh, all all these uh, sort of entities, if we if I can put it this way? So why, for example, patients perceive the disease in a way different, uh, in a different way from basic research researchers who might be looking at the very specific points they want to intervene with? Well, I think that the the biggest problem we face is that in attempting to um, create a biological definition of the disease, um, we've messed up um, and created something that is not only inaccurate, but um, uh, really inhibitory to, um, um, to any sort of productive research. So with a patient and their families, obviously they don't, um, they're not scientists and they're not trained in medicine. What matters to them is what is happening uh, to uh, the family, what is happening to the loved one with the disease, what is happening to the, the people who have to care for them. Those symptoms are what we would call clinical symptoms. Um, you know, how much can they remember? Um, how careful do we have to be that they're not wandering? Um, and, and so on and so on. For physicians and scientists, though, that those list of symptoms don't represent a roadmap to treatment. Um, we need to understand what is the biology. And here is where we got caught because the, um, the disease beginning with its naming uh, by um, Alzheimer and Kreplin back in the early 1900s um, almost irretrievably linked the appearance of these funny deposits um, in the brain as causative elements in the disease. And it was a noble and even um, laudable hypothesis 100 years ago. Um, But we've collected a lot of data in the interim, and the data is simply inconsistent with that hypothesis we need to abandon it, but for reasons that I explore in the book and honestly to this day don't fully understand, um, the field has been unwilling to give up on the um, on that linkage between pathology and behavior, um, and we've ended up in a mess. So what are the leading hypotheses that we have for what causes Alzheimer's? So the leading hypothesis is known as the um, amyloid cascade hypothesis. And this is a, um, um, it, it's a the prediction that a series of events beginning with the deposition of this small peptide known as beta amyloid 
um, is the trigger for a cascade of events that ultimately leads in the dementia that we um, um, find as Alzheimer's disease. Um, and that idea has dominated the field um, and really squeezed out all other uh, perfectly viable hypotheses um, that then become um, discouraged and and not tested. So these other hypotheses include um, oxidative damage. They include uh, the loss of genomic integrity through DNA damage in the neurons and other cells of the brain. It includes um, pathological deposits of tau, uh, which are um, also part of the picture of the of the Alzheimer brain. It includes loss of myelin. It includes um, mitochondrial dysfunction. It includes um, the impact of a cellular state known as senescence. It includes the, the many, many, many uh, alternatives exist. They aren't mutually exclusive, and yet um, somehow it's become the 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 sort of the. Uh, requirement of the field that you must um, relate whatever your hypothesis is, you have to explain it in terms of beta amyloid. And uh, this is, um, this is simply nonsense. Do you think this is one of the major hindrances to our ability to find a cure for it? I absolutely do. Yes, uh, unequivocally. So how is studying Alzheimer's disease approached nowadays? Um, it's approached as we approach any disease. You start with the hypothesis. You um, perform an experiment uh, based on that hypothesis. You analyze your data. Um, and then you, re, um, you adjust your hypothesis um, and start the process over again. And... Um, <laughs> where we're stuck is that we formed a hypothesis, we did the experiments, we analyzed the data, they don't agree with our hypothesis, and we don't change the hypothesis. So we, it's um, kind of like beating your head against a wall. Um, it only feels good when you stop. So why do you think uh, uh, this hypothesis, the amyloid cascade, is so resilient to being changed? That's a really interesting question, um, and I wish I could answer it for you, but I can't. Um, I, I try and explain, and in the book, I, I try and go into what I think was the psychology um, of the uh, of the different epochs in in which um, Alzheimer's research uh, emerged. Um, I track some strategic decisions that I describe as more political in nature than scientific. Um, they all seemed um, smart at the time, but looking back, their impact um, has been to really distort our field in a way that um, just precludes us from, from making progress. Um, and in many ways, I just, I need to apologize because I wish I had an answer. Um, and, 
Um, I'm as frustrated, probably more frustrated than anyone um, that um, I can't give a clear alternative path uh, to a a cure for this horrible disease. Um, Mostly what I'm trying to do by this book and in my other writings and, 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 um, and teachings is just to get people to reset to go back and, and as I put it, start listening to our own data um, and hopefully yeah. from there get to where we need to go. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, not at all. That's uh, that's exactly the point, to really shake up the field, to, just to get people thinking about all of these alternatives and where can we put our brain power <laughs> yes. to, to explore. Exactly. So what do, you, what do you think is the significance and perhaps potential of the biotech and uh, maybe pharma industries in our quest to, uh, of finding a cure? I think they're really important. And um, I say in the book um, that I, I admit when I started, I was looking to you know, try to paint the pharmaceutical industry as one of the major villains of the, uh, of the story. Um, but the facts that just simply don't bear that out. Um, and what I, um, came to not just realize, but appreciate in writing the book and in getting the, you know, the, uh, the data together for it, it, we really, really, really need the pharmaceutical industry. Um, if we're ever going to have any chance of, uh, of, of combating this disease, um, it's, um, you know, basic researchers like myself, we solve a problem, we just want to move on. Um, but, but solving a problem intellectually doesn't get a pill or a, or a, or a treatment into anybody's clinic. Um, and it's that gap that's filled by the pharmaceutical industries and they're extraordinarily efficient at it. And I have recently begun to highlight the immense success of the, uh, of the, of the virus, the viral vaccines we've been able to develop. Um, yes, that was built on a solid foundation of basic science, but boy, it just would not have happened, uh, without the biotech industry and even some of the, and including the major, the major pharmaceutical houses, um, putting their shoulder to the wheel and, and, and making, vaccines happen. Um, and yet they too bear a certain responsibility for our being stuck, um, for a variety of reasons having to do with ego, having to do with, um, I think financial incentives that, uh, um, are divorced from, from scientific judgment. Um, the field has been a party to the dominance of the amyloid model of Alzheimer's disease. And as I say in the book, that's not really responsible behavior. They have the data. They know how good it is. They have some of the best statisticians in the world. And rather than use them to truly guide the financial risks that they take, they use them to paper over in retrospect what have been bad risks 
and that's sad. So I'm sure many of our listeners uh, heard heard the news over summer about Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab, mm-hmm. being approved by FDA. So could you tell us a little bit about it and what is your perspective? Well, I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to you or to anyone who's listened this far. Um, I think that decision was a disastrous one. Um, and it has been playing out in much the way that we expected. The um, the statistics were reworked in the most aggressive way possible to find a shadow of a of a possibility. And on the basis of that, the FDA made what I think was a almost irresponsible decision um, to go ahead and approve the drug. And the outcry in the field has been very substantial. Um, and I find it coming from not just people like myself who don't feel that amyloid, reduction of amyloid is going to do anything for the disease. Um, which is certainly part of the criticism, but I think even people for whom amyloid is um, remains uh, uh, their top model, the the process by which the drug was approved uh, still comes up for criticism. So, and I, it, it's playing out, as I said, uh, as one might have predicted, the drug is not being adopted. Um, the, uh, the European regulators have now said they're not going to uh, uh, prescribe it. The Japanese have said they're not going to prescribe it. Um, there's still debate in the United States um, after the FDA approved our um, public health care system. Med- uh, well, what passes for public health care system, Medicaid, Medicare, um, has not decided whether or not they're going to approve it. And there's a lot of pressure on them to not approve it. Um, in part because it is not efficacious, or at least not very efficacious. I would say not efficacious, Um, in part because there are clear risks involved, um, attributable to brain swelling, um, and both short and long-term consequences of that. And just at a very basic level, the, the cost is so exorbitant that, and the number of people with the disease, the number of potential uh, um, people who would use the drug is so enormous um, that it would quickly bankrupt our entire healthcare system. And what do you think the ramifications would be for other companies uh, seeking the FDA approval for for their antibodies that might be clearing amyloid? Do you think they might be driving price down? Um, well, yes, I think they're definitely driving price down. In fact, I, I haven't followed through, but I, I did see a headline a day or two ago that, uh, Biogen had taken the step of reducing the cost of what they call Aduhelm, uh, by half. Um, so yeah, I think the hot breath of competition certainly is part of that. But I think part of it is that they just um, are, they have not convinced the, the medical community that this is a drug worth prescribing. Um, as a basic researcher, what I worry about is that now 
if reduction of amyloid, if, if reduction of a biomarker, and I would argue an unproven biomarker, is now sufficient to get emergency approval from the FDA, well, there is a long line of companies and a long line of products that's going to be forming at the FDA's door saying, well, look, we reduced tau, you should improve our drug. Uh, hello, we also reduced amyloid using a different method. You should approve our drug. And pretty soon we'll have all these drugs that don't do anything um, out on the market. And I think the risk is substantial that the public and um, and the governments of the world will begin to lose, lose confidence and lose faith uh, uh, in the biomedical establishment. Oh, that's such a key point to really bring across uh, to people that even when the amyloid itself, so from biomolecular perspective, is being cleared out, it might not translate into clinical benefits. So even from the basic science, we cannot just go straight to clinical benefits in humans. Correct. Yeah. And now thinking about more of a top-down approach of regulation and also studying Alzheimer's, really. So what are the roles of universities or governments in how this research is being subsidized, for example? Yeah, good question. I've thought about it a lot, and I think it, this is an area where we could, you know, debate and uh, uh productively uh, for quite a while. Um, my personal opinion is that most of the really, most of modern uh, medical advance has been built on the shoulders of strong basic research. So now, now of course I have skin in this game. Um, uh, I'm, I'm far from a neutral observer on this, but, but I do believe that uh, the governments of the world would be well advised to put um, substantial effort uh, into the funding of basic research. And I, I emphasize basic um, rather than applied because as I like to say, you just don't know where your next good idea is going to come from. And, you know, we are now having a revolution in gene editing based on an absolutely arcane set of enzymes in a bunch of weird bacteria that no one had ever heard of. Mm. Um, and, but that's the whole basis of CRISPR-Cas9. Um, if you tried 20 years ago, or let's say 30 years ago, to make a funding decision based on um, whether or not you should fund research into these, these odd creatures, I think all of us, including myself, would have said, well, no, I don't think so. Um, but look, look what happened. Um, so there's that. Um, I do think then there is a role um, in so I, this is where I would put sort of the, I think that would be the, um, the cornerstone of the, of the university and, and research institute uh, work. Um, but building on that cornerstone, there, there is a role for, uh, for basic translational work. That is to say, at the end of the day, the bacteria are really fun, 
but you've got to begin to connect that to mammalian physiology and in particular to human physiology. Um, and because there's a, there is a basic research gap between the odd creatures of the world and, you know, the human biology. And that's where clinical medicine is, is going to re- achieve its most benefits. So I would extend that all the way through the uh, initial stages of clinical trials. So whether a drug uh, based on a, uh, a new discovery um, is safe, uh, phase one clinical trial, or shows early signs of being effective, phase early phase two clinical trials, um, I think there's a role for um, government. Um, and I think even um, university tech transfer groups um, have a role there. But I would put a very hard stop right there. And then I believe that the more expensive, clinically intense uh, phase three trials, um, those need those are expenses that need to be borne um, by industry itself. Um, and I think that that would make for a much more productive um, uh, bio, biotech industry and biotech machinery. So now thinking about the bigger picture, in what ways our thinking and understanding Alzheimer's is being shaped by the political, economic, and also social forces of the day? Oh, I would... Tough question. I mean, everything is, is of course, influenced by the politics of the day and the, and the social questions of the day. Um, I think the problem with Alzheimer's disease is that... Um, in, in trying to, um, in trying to move quickly, we've moved rashly, um, um, rather than sort of accept our own lack of knowledge. I would call it almost a humility, um, you know, rather than being humble in the face of, of our, lack of knowledge about the disease, um, we've instead become arrogant and said, oh, no, I know exactly what's going on. We just have to do this. And if it doesn't work, it means we just need to select a slightly different group of patients, or maybe we need to go a little bit earlier in the disease. Or, but, um, So that attitude is, I would characterize it as political and social. It has, sadly, um, not a lot of scientific merit to it. And what are the implications of raising these issues for the wider society, especially in terms of more aging population and people living much longer about the burden of the disease? Yeah, it's critical. Um, and here again, I, I sure wish that I had an answer, um, um, you know, a, a recipe for success. I don't. Um, I devoted a whole chapter in the book to, to what we know, well, sort of a 
introduction to what we know about the biology of aging because Alzheimer's is sort of a poster child for the um, the fact that the successes in public health that have extended human lifespan to well beyond what it was um, back when we were um, in prehistoric times, um, that success has led to the paradox of exposing us to diseases that our 10,000 year old ancestors would never have known about because they never got old enough to get them. Um, So we need, and it's why I make such a big push in the book to redouble and and more uh, our efforts to understand the biology of aging because whatever that turns out to be, it's the key to not just Alzheimer's disease, but a host of diseases that afflict all of our body systems from our hearts to our joints, to our bones, to our muscles, um, our, our kidneys, our livers. It, it affects all of us. And I raised the question in the book about whether we'll stop aging. I don't think we will. Um, what all we can do, I believe, is to keep what's called our health span as long as possible. So in understanding the biology, you can keep our muscles as healthy as they can be for as long as possible, keep our brains as healthy as they can be for as long as possible. But, um, you know, it's, it's sad, but death is not optional. This is such a great point. And actually, it brings me back uh, to the beginning of your book when you were telling a story of uh, of one of the Alzheimer's patients. And mm. something that you wrote about them is that they've done everything, in, quote, in, in quotes, right in with regards yeah. to exercise and the diet and still ended up with this disease. So I wonder to what extent should we be thinking about preventative measures, but maybe not putting all of our eggs in one basket. Um, I would definitely agree with that point of view. Um, um, prevention, lifestyle choices. Um, I mean, it's really boring. And from a from a biotech point of view, from a pharmaceutical point of view, it's not only boring; it's unprofitable because there's no intellectual property involved. But you know, no one's going to make a whole lot of money um, prescribing a daily walk, um, um, and yet it makes perfect sense from a, a more holistic view of aging and of, and of diseases like Alzheimer's. Um, and I, I mentioned keeping blood pressure under control, same thing. It's, there's, there's some pills to be sold there, but, um, not a lot of intellectual property left. And so not, you know, you'll never be able to charge 56,000 us dollars, uh, for a one-year treatment um, of keeping blood pressure down. So um, I think, I guess if, if you take a step back, what I'm really arguing is that our pharmaceutical models need to change. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, How Not to Study a Disease, surprised you the most? Um. I guess the diversity of brain 
features that are lost in Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it just seems like every time I turn around and look at um, the cells, the, the cells of the brain's innate immune system, every time I look at the behavior of the oligodendrocytes that make myelin, um, every time I even just look at, at neurons in regions of the brain that are not supposed to be affected by Alzheimer's, I'm just astonished that the it's the effect of this illness, and I don't, and I I, I say it hesitantly because I I want to include aging in in that um, uh, in the list of causes, but the the loss of function is extraordinarily widespread. And I think that in the end is the message um, that we are coming, you were slowly coming around to realizing. And you yourself, do you follow the Mediterranean diet? Uh, you know, um, probably not as well as I should, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I do try and watch. Um, I think all of us um, are are human, and um, we, as a species, have a great deal of trouble um, with delayed gratification. And since the delay in this case can be 30, 40, 50 years, um, it takes a real iron will to be able to uh, live perfectly. But as I think, as you pointed out just a moment ago, the story of Dorothy is a uh, a stark reminder that even if you were to do everything perfectly, it's um, still not a guarantee. Yeah, I can allow a scoop of gelato now and then. I would, I would even recommend it. <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Um, well, I don't plan to write, <laughs> to write another book. I have to say it was a, uh, a major effort and, uh, I'm not sure I've got another book in me. Um, my lab is interested in, in, in myelin and inflammation as, um, uh, and DNA damage as, as, and they're, and in fact, how those three things relate to each other. Um, it's, um, it's a complex web. Um, I try and keep it reduced to specific experiments, but, um, it's a challenge and I'll be honest. Um, I've been in this game long enough that I'm sort of going about ready to pass the torch to others, uh, to keep up the fight. Um, maybe if I can make a few early entrees into these fields, uh, I can light the way for others to carry on. Yeah. You're truly an inspiration uh, to many of the younger scholars. I hope so, so. Where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Um, well, the book, um, you can just um, head to MIT Press uh, when pick it up on their website. It's available on uh, all the commercial booksellers uh, online. Um, um, and I just would be delighted to have you read it. And I'm also delighted to get feedback, um, um, things that are easy to understand, hard to understand, and maybe there will be a second book in me one day. Oh, let's hope so. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this refreshing discussion. Pleasure. Thank you for having me.